Welcome to the Happy Mindset. Today's episode is episode number 78, and today's episode title is called A Modern Day Alchemist. So today I'm joined by Mark Bradford. Mark is an author, he's a web developer, and a podcast host. On today's episode, he talks about the writing process. He talks about the difference in his mind between fiction and nonfiction, the different process he has for that. He talks about how being a web developer, how that analytical process helps him to become a better writer, a more well-rounded writer. Mark's an interesting character in general. I like the conversation with him. He's created a dating website as well. So he's kind of an experimenter, a bit of an inventor and a tinkerer. So I I like that about him. I like the conversation that we had. And uh, talked a little bit about, I think it's synesthesia. I think that's the word, Uh, which is basically like a merging of senses. I think for Mark, it was that... When he sees a color, he also sees a shape in his mind as well. It's an interesting kind of thing that the people who actually have it, they mightn't realize they actually have it because they assume that other people will see the world that way as well. So another thing that comes up in this interview is just how Mark sees the world, uh, the way he sees things in systems and his urge to always re- deconstruct something and make it better. So I enjoyed the conversation with him. That's that's a way that I like looking at the world too. It's or not even like, like it's that's how I see the world. I see the world in systems as well. We're trying to figure out what are the small smallest component parts of it as well. So again, that's again that's something. If you're listening to it right now, that might not be something that is as common as you think. So if you're resonating with this, I would urge you to explore that aspect of yourself a bit more and realize that it mightn't be as common as you think, and you can use that to do things in the world that might not seem possible for other people. So thanks for for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I'll see you on the next episode. Okay, so thanks for joining us today, Mark. You're very welcome. So my first question is for you is who are you and what are you doing in the world today? Who am I and what am I doing in the world today? Wow, I like that. It's nice and broad. I am Mark Bradford and what I'm doing in the world today is I am hopefully... Um, educating people on a number of things one of them being what life is made of and how to kind of kind of you know manage that and kind of look at life from a different perspective and go oh it's made of these elements I think I know how to put them together in such a way that I can get a bit more out of it that's cool when did you start thinking along those terms alchemy is a big thing for you alchemy for life when did you start gravitating towards alchemy and looking at life that way yeah, alchemy is a, is a very big thing for me. It keeps coming back no matter if I want it to or not. It keeps appearing in different forms. And so uh, for me, I guess the definition of alchemy in broad terms is that alchemy is something that's kind of part science and part art and part magic. So it's something that you can understand and have control over, but you'll never have 100% true control or understanding of it. And I think that's what alchemy is. And if you do it right, you get some really cool stuff out of it but you can't take it for granted. So that's kind of the gist of alchemy. And when I started thinking about it was um, years ago, actually, when I got divorced. Um, And that sort of led me down a a huge path of alchemy. And what had happened was I went through this divorce and ended up taking my kids to a psychologist just to make sure that they were, you know, everything was going well. And the joke that I use is that, you know, I know some things, but I don't want to be like Obi-Wan and create a Darth Vader because I don't know enough. So I took them to her for some visits and, you know, she said I was doing a really, really good job. And under the circumstances, they were really stable and so forth. 
But then she asked me, what are you doing for you? And, and that was when I had my deer in the headlights moment where I just sort of stared at her and went, wait, that's, a, that's an option. And she said, you really need to do things for you. You know, you're doing a great job, but there's not going to be anything left of you. So then that's when I started thinking about balance and starting about thinking about balance made me think about alchemy. So that's probably the moment when it happened for me. Hmm. So like when you started thinking about balance and alchemy, what actually started changing in your life in the real world from that? Yeah, that's a good question. So the real world implications and actions of what happened were that I really did start thinking about myself in such a way that I thought, well, I got to take care of myself. And it's not like I was letting myself go, but I wasn't really ever thinking, well, what would I like? <laughs> you know, what, what, what would, what would be fun for me or what, what do I need for myself to keep me going? And so I started doing things like that. I started going on, I started dating and I started going out into that world and I started thinking about myself independently of my kids. And I love my kids very, very, very much. And I loved them at that time. And I was just, we were immersed together and surviving and doing things. But I started thinking in terms of what would be fun for me or what would be very enriching. And that's when I started making those changes. So like with the kids, like did, did you, was that a new thing for you to start thinking of yourself not as a father, like were you wrapped up in that uh, that identity for a while, like or what happened there? Yeah, I was um I was always wrapped up in the identity of being a dad. I mean, I always liked that, and it's it's a pretty amazing thing. Um, if you're a woman, you you know you're able to reproduce and 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 create life. If you're a dad, you have you don't have that ability, but you have the ability to be a, a provider and a protector and a and a mentor and all that other stuff and. So that was always part and always will be part of my identity. And, but when, I, okay, I guess I didn't explain that. When I was going through this divorce with my kids, I ended up having them full-time. So I was a full-time parent at the same time that I was um, trying to juggle my business and figure this whole balance thing out. So that's where that all came from was that I was um, just trying to focus on being a dad, but also taking care of myself at the same time. Hmm. so like talking about your career there like what were you doing in your career like with the technology you were doing at that time yeah you and i have a lot of things hmm. in common i think which is really kind of fun to talk to you because you know you 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 are very fascinated and deal a lot with the mind and how the mind works and psychology and things but you also have a background in coding and things like that right yeah Languages okay. and coding, yeah. yeah. Yeah, same here. So I have a background in technology and development and web development and design and, and all that stuff. So my business at the time was, and still is, it's, I have two things going on, is um, web development and actually sort of technology consulting for small and medium businesses. So I still help them with, you know, that sort of stuff, all the stuff they don't really want to deal with, the stuff that keeps them sleeping at night instead of waking up and worrying about how all that stuff works. So that was, that was what I was doing. So I was juggling that. And then I was starting to learn this balance thing. And then I was a full-time dad instead of, you know, a 50, 50 parent. And there was never the kids go over here, kids go over here. The 50, 50 I meant was like when I was married that we were two parents and then I had to become both parents. Not that I could ever be a, a mom per se, but I tried to do the best I could to fill both roles. Okay. 
how did you do that? Like, was it, was it easy? Was it hard for you to adapt yourself into boat roles? Like, how did you manage to, to do that? Yeah. Um, it was, um, it was not easy. It was, it was very difficult. It was, um, it certainly wasn't because of a lack of desire. Like I really, really wanted to step up for the kids. I really wanted to be everything they needed to have. And I can only do so much, as I said, as one single person that happens to be their dad. It, it was hard because without saying too much, there was a lot going on in which I had to be very objective, or at least I wanted to be. And in looking back, I was extremely objective about everything going on and tried to just fill the roles I needed me to, to fill. And, and it was hard. It was, it was, it took some get back and forth and getting used to with the kids because I have a boy and a girl and they each have their own unique way of looking at the world and responding emotionally and intellectually. What's been the biggest thing that, they, that they've taught you? Um, the biggest thing they've taught me was that they are pretty smart um, and they're pretty self-contained people in that it's a bad idea to underestimate them. And I think people do that all the time where they just sort of brand the children by saying, Oh, kids are resilient. Well, they're, yeah, they're about as resilient as an adult, but they also have a perception far beyond what you think they have. And so it was my kids actually who had already adapted to the new life before I did, because my head was just spinning about what was going on. And they, and they were already moved on. They were already moved on and perfectly fine at the time with just me being their parent. So that was, that was huge. <laughs> that was huge to be like the last one on board on that one. <laughs> okay. That's interesting. Yeah. I do think we take, uh, we take it for granted the kids and children, like what an understanding they might have, we can project things onto them. So I think that's interesting. That's a good word project. Yeah. I think parents and other people tend to do that. And I think, it seemed to me that the people, and I had gone on a tremendous amount of dates, an absurd amount of dates. And um, I had learned a lot from the single moms that, uh, that I had gone on dates with, that, that there was a number of them that would just say, oh yeah, kids are resilient, because the projecting was, yeah, because I don't want to deal with it. And they're fine. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's where that came from. Where did the, the dating site come out of then? Was it from your experience of dating? Like when did that come about? Yeah, yeah, that was that was interesting. And that goes back to the whole doing both, like thinking about psychology and also using a coding skill. So I, as my friend said, man, you just keep jumping back on that horse and it keeps kicking you off. Well, I, I, kept, I kept making, you know, I had a number of um, profiles on dating sites because I thought, well, just like anything else in life, you got to, you got to step up and you got to show up if you want something. And I really wanted to have that new relationship or at least get out there. And my, my friend told me, you need to get out there and figure out where your stock is. He said, because you've been married all this time, you don't realize that you're pretty valuable. And it's easy to forget that when you go through divorce. So I went and um, made all these accounts. And I don't mean like I made like 30 accounts. I, it was like the, the, the big four or five or three or whatever they are now. They're mostly owned by the same company now. And I made these and I kept seeing a pattern, which is what I do. I see systems and everything I look at and I want to make it better or I want to fix it or I want to build something. So I went ahead and made those profiles and I kept seeing that everything was backwards. And I'm like, come on, come on, you're doing this wrong. You know what would work. And of course, then I had to sit down on a piece of paper on my whiteboard and draw it all out. And then I made the dating site, which I considered to be 
not so much a site, but a tool. I was like, I want to make a tool people can use. They spend 10 minutes a day and they're out of here. And that was one of my biggest mistakes. <laughs> that was one of your biggest mistakes, boy. Because that's not how you make money with a dating site. Because that's how they all make money is that they don't want you to leave. They don't want you to find anyone. That's one of their biggest dirty secrets. They don't, if you find someone, you go away. But if you keep staying engaged and being perpetually pulled by that carrot of hope and change and everything, you're going to keep coming back and keep coming back. And that's why all the sites are structured that way to keep you coming back. But if you build someone a tool and they go, oh, this is cool, click, 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 thanks, good, great. And they either meet somebody and leave or they go, I'll see you in two days. You're not going to get a lot of traffic. You're not going to get a lot of ad clicks and you're not going to get a lot yeah. of, uh, you're not going to get paying customers. And so that's what I did. I did it altruistically just to see if I could make a site that wasn't backwards. So you were coming at it more from altruism rather than profit. Yes, exactly. <laughs> One of my problems. Like what you've, yeah. but what you described there is like it'd be a great place if we could like live in a world where people create tools that actually are just like to the point and efficient and and because what you described there, the more the profit driven is like leading to addictive behaviors that trickle out into our lives. Like that's absolutely correct. And uh, to your point, yeah. it's almost like it's self defeating. Like you can't really make a non profitable dating site that works. Do you know what I mean? So like. Yeah. If you make a dating site that works, people aren't going to stay on it very long because if it works, they're going to find someone much sooner. But, the, but if you make one that keeps them engaged, well, then you're making a site that's going to make it difficult for them to meet someone. So yeah, it's all, they're almost like mutually exclusive, but yes, I wish the world was that way. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a fantasy world, but it would be really cool if we could just build tools that worked. That helped. Yeah. Yeah. So how about, um, you mentioned there how you see patterns and systems were you quite young when you started developing that? Like, when did you notice that that's how you saw the world? Well, and that's one of the things that fascinated me about, about some of the things I've read about you and some of the things in your book that I was reading is that, you know, we, we also kind of were, were alike in that way in that I think I saw systems for a very long time, but I sort of assumed that everyone saw that. And it's almost like, okay, I'm probably going to pronounce it wrong. Uh, is it synesthesia? Are you familiar with what that is? Vaguely. No, I don't know what uh, synesthesia I used to pronounce it synthanesia, which sounds really cool. And maybe my next book will be called it. But um, synesthesia, it's, it's essentially a melding of your senses. So they believe that when we're very, very young, like babies and so forth, all of our senses are kind of all in one. And we just sense things and we go, okay, that's, that's all the same thing. Smells and tastes and touches and sights and hearing, all that stuff are the same. And then as we get older, we learn to separate them. Our brain says, oh, that's coming from here and that's from here. But there are people who don't. There are people who go, oh, that chili has an awful lot of, um, it's awfully loud. Mm -hmm. Or um, that, that thing I was, uh, that, that um, those notes that I hear, they're really kind of like pointy cones. And so their brain processes on sort of two senses or more at once. And it's kind of a cool thing because it doesn't get in the way of life. It's not something that even comes up. Most people who have that, don't even realize they have it until high school or college because they finally mention something and people go, what are you talking about? What do you, what do you mean when you hear that it's the cones or the cylinders or the spheres? And so I was actually watching um, a YouTube uh, special on this in which there was a group of synesthesia people got together and they just had the most hilarious conversations because they really 
We're like, yes, that's what I hear when I see that. So the reason I mentioned that is because I had a bit of that. And I remember in high school, I used to have fun conversations with people and they'd, ask, they'd tell, give me a color and I'd tell them what shape it was because colors would invoke shapes in my head all the time. And so I thought nothing of it. I thought I was just, I was kind of a silly guy, but that's when I learned more. And I think that's around the same time I figured out the whole system thing. And, but it was only really recently, it was only until the whole epiphany with the psychologist that I thought, man, I can't help it. Every time I look at something, I want to, I want to see how it works. And then I want to either improve it or fix it or augment it or build something to fill that. So that's when I figured out. In fact, if I may be allowed to ramble further, mm. I, I wrote in, in, in my Alchemy for Life book about people who like do dissimilar things. They're like, well, I, I'm really good at this and I kind of like that. Geez, I should pick a lane. Well, you may have already picked a lane and those may be offshoots of the thing. So for me, it was writing fiction and creating a dating site and creating a coaching system. They were all the same thing. They were all based on me looking at systems and building. So that was really the same thing. Uh, yeah, I like that. Yeah. So, yeah. So you got the core thing in the middle and it's like just diverse. It's like the surface level stuff looks different, but it's, it's underneath. There's like, it's, it's similar, it's similar patterns. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, that's cool. How about the book? So when did you start writing fiction? When did that come about? Well, it's interesting you say that because I've kind of come full circle. So I started writing as I was going through the, the divorce that and this was part of the whole, what does Mark want? And so that was something I was starting to really enjoy. It was just this creative outlet. And I started writing short stories and published them. And then recently I started writing nonfiction and I sat down to write a book about this whole time, energy and resources thing and the coaching thing and the alchemy for life thing. And, but it didn't want to come out. And so I ended up writing three books first and then the Alchemy for Life book, which was my fourth book. But now I'm back to fiction because I thought, you know what? I'm going to give it a break. I'm not going to write anymore. I'm going to let them do what they're supposed to do. And then, of course, that lasted for about 17 days. And then I started writing a fiction. So, and it's supposed to be out uh, in December 15th, I believe. Where are you in the process now? Are you nearly finished that book? Well, I am, I'd say a good half. I'm about half done with it. And so I had actually had the deadline set and I've talked to some people and they, they kind of freaked out, like, why would you do that? And I thought, well, because that's how it works in the real world where you have deadlines with, with books, you know? So I thought I'm going to do that to myself. And so that's where I am. I'd say, you know, it'll definitely be out when it's supposed to be. And um, I'm about halfway through it. The interesting thing for me, and I don't want to call it a hurdle because it's not, it's more of a decision is that, as I started to write it, I thought, wow, I kind of see a trilogy here. And then I saw uh, two books and I'm not sure what, what's going to happen. So the way, th depending on how things play out in the next half month, I may be writing one book or two books. So I'm not sure how I'm going to, how it's going to work. If there's a lot more there, I'm going to end it at one point and then have a sequel, but I don't want to end it at one point where there's no real end and people buy the book and they go, Oh, well, this is just one book cut into two. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't want to do that to people. So, but I'd say to answer your question, um, about half done. How about fiction and nonfiction? Like, do you see like how do you you think you think differently about those books? Like, what's the kind of thought process like that distinguishes fiction from nonfiction for you? Yeah, that is another wonderful question because that they they are so distinct. 
they are so distinctly different because with me writing the fiction or the nonfiction, excuse me, with me writing the four nonfictions, it was a sort of early morning structured logical way of trying to explain a thing I already knew. I was trying to explain a system that I could see perfectly clearly and just arrange things in such a way to make sure chapters were in the right order, that I expanded properly on things. And I think for me, it was essentially something that just was already there and needed to be done, if that makes sense. But with fiction, it was the opposite. I wanted to write more at night. It was, it felt more like I was really screwing around, which all writing feels that way. As as I'm sure you found out that you sit down and you write and you're really in the zone and you're like, Oh man, I should really get to work. You know? So, and all writing feels that way for me. So whether I'm writing articles or, or anything other than an email to a client, when I'm getting into writing, it feels like I'm screwing around because I'm enjoying it so much. And so one of the biggest things you learn is you need to give yourself a license to write and say, no, 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 just write. So to answer your question, the fiction felt really different because the fiction, I didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, I had made an outline, I had made a pretty extensive outline, but in the filling in of each chapter, you start to discover things about the characters that they themselves reveal to you versus you telling them what they're going to say. You realize what their relationships are. You realize what their personalities are. And they kind of tell you, no, I'm responding this way. And that sets the tone for what happens in the future. So it's almost like I'm reading the book as I write it. It's just, it's a weird thing. It's a bizarre thing. Writing is weird. Sometimes right, you, you write stuff and you're like, who actually said that? It's like, exactly. I couldn't have said it better myself or whatever, that type of stuff. That's, that's why I like writing. And I never had that experience in school. In school, it felt more like that's uh, something I had to do. But when I chose to do writing, then it was like, I actually say things that like I'm, I didn't know I could say that or that makes sense to me now because I said it that way. Uh, it's quite, quite funny. It is. It is. It's really a wonderful thing. And I think school for me had done everything it could possibly do to dissuade me from writing. Like I had a really bad feeling about writing. I just, I, it, it confused me because, you know, the old dead guys were the guys that set the rules and, yeah. and then broke them so that if you broke the rules, you weren't allowed to cause you, nobody knew who you were. And that's, it's, it's, it's like, well then how do you write then? Because if you follow the rules, your writing is boring and mundane. And if you start to bend and break them and establish your own way, then you're told, well, you're not allowed to do that yet. You need to write about 20 books and then, and then die and then let 200 years pass. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. It's mad. They, like, so like with, with the characters you're building and stuff, are there aspects like of, of your own life that goes into it from looking at it? Like, like does that play out at all in your, in your fiction? Yeah. I, uh, I was actually very well, I was very aware of what you just said. I was very aware of, of that. So I had written a couple other stories. I wrote one called God's Jester, and it was kind of a joke I had on myself because some of the absurd things that happened in my life, so many that I said, well, I'm just God's jester. I'm just sort of here to entertain. <laughs> I'm sort of here to suffer and entertain. But then I decided, no, that's not really who I am. But that book was basically not even loosely based on me. It was very strongly based on things I had encountered. And, um, but when I sat down to write this one, it was very different. And in the beginning, I was really scrutinizing it for going, who is this? Who is this? Who is this? And of the three 
at the point at, at where I am now, there's three, there seems to be three main characters. Uh, and I'm not any of them. And are there aspects of my experiences that are in there? Yes, but they definitely have different reactions than I would have had. So, um, and that's the part that's really enjoyable for me because it's almost like they're, you know, they have a certain life to them where I can see logically they would react this way where I would just, I wouldn't react that way. And it's kind of fun to live through someone else reacting a certain way that you yourself wouldn't. I guess you learn something from that too. Do you get a new perspective? Yeah, you're right. Because it's like you put yourself in someone else's shoes. Like even if the way that they're reacting is definitely not a way you'd react. And the easy form of that is the bad guy, if you will, or the people that you put in as the characters that are sort of two-dimensional that kind of, kind of come and go. Obviously, you make them react in such a way that's funny or you make them react in such a way that's absurd where you're like, oh. But having main characters that you care about that also react very differently than you would very much puts you in different shoes so you can kind of see other perspectives of other people. Uh. So like for you there, it sounds like you're able to write without like filtering yourself. You're able to like write in streams of consciousness. Like you're able to like just, is that, is that, is that fair to say? Or like you find yourself like writing and you find yourself filtering what you're saying or. I um I'm thinking about what you said. Cause it's a very, that's a very thought provoking question that um, I think I tried the whole listen to your muse thing but then she kind of dumped me off and left me hanging when, when I started to write my very first story a long time ago. Um, and it is kind of fun to do it that way in which you just write and you just sort of free association, free thought kind of thing. But I wasn't about to do it for this one. I thought this story deserved a bit more than that. And I don't know if you can do a novel that way, maybe a short story, but I, it's a structured chaos in a way. It's, it's a way where you like, you let yourself go off the leash and then you go and do your thing because with a leash, it's never going to happen properly. So you take the leash off and you let yourself run and be emotional and creative and chaotic and expressive. And then you kind of go, kind of go back and go, okay, come on, come on. No, no, come here, come here, come here. And you corner yourself and you put the leash back on because you're like, okay, now we have to take a step back and make sure we're following what we really want to do in this book. Obviously there's a tone. So if you want to write a book that's a comedy, you don't want to get too laborious. Or if you're going to write a book that is like a mystery or something exciting, you don't want to get bogged down in something else. So you every so often have to put the leash back on and go, are we doing what we want to do? And then maybe pull on it a little bit to keep yourself in line. So it's a bit of both. Yeah. Yes. And order. So like the, uh, when you're writing, have you ever noticed how your energy affects your writing? Like how you're feeling when you're writing, how that affects what you write. Oh, I think that's a, a. I think that's even backwards. I think your your writing is created or destroyed by your your uh, energy, and that's why I think people have these writer's blocks, because I had never had writer's block, ever, and I thought, well, either my writing is that bad, or there's something else I'm not figuring out here. And I think, and, and I remember, and I realized that's what it was with me being all about time, energy, and resources. I realized there was a certain energy I had to feel. And it's, and drinking is that way for me too, believe it or not. So drinking alcohol, I have to already be happy to want to drink. I can't drink to get happy. I can't, you know, and I know a lot of people do that when it comes to drinking or drugs or something. But for me, I already have to have that state of mind and just want to amplify it more versus create it. And the same thing is with this book where you really 
have to go, okay, am I ready? And that occurs to me at least once a day where I say, am I ready to write? Am I ready yet? Is, you know, do I feel centered enough to do that? And then I do it or I don't do it. Because if I sit down and I go, no, I'm not ready, nothing's going to come out. Yeah. Yeah, feeling centered to, to do it. Yeah, that's a good one. I just noticed when I was writing my book that there was one time in particular I can remember writing it and I didn't feel good. And like afterwards when I was looking back on it, it was like because I didn't feel good while writing it, even reading it didn't feel good to me. Well, like I never really kind of paid attention to that before. And then from that point forward, I was like, I'll be aware of how I'm feeling while I'm writing because it's also going to impact the reader as well, how I'm feeling putting the words onto this page. That's the sense they might get from reading it. Uh, well, it, and you're a language person, so you probably really appreciate the fact that there's this layer on top of the language of the thing that you were able to pick up on that you didn't feel well. You didn't say it in the words that you didn't feel well, but you could kind of feel it yeah. by the way words were chosen. And I think that's amazing. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I thought, I thought before I, thought, I would have thought it was just about the language and helping people feel a certain way with the language. But yeah, then I started realizing no, it wasn't even the words. It was the emotion that I was bringing to it. It was another layer. So like, as a, a web developer, how, how do you feel that has helped you to write that logic that a computer programmer can have? Well, I, I was going to say for the eighth time, that was a good question, because these are really good questions. Uh, but I'll, I'll stop saying that over and over again. The, um, it's something I, I've said for a long time, and something I've discovered is, again, it's the looking at systems, is that there are some people to a very strong degree, and I think you're one of them, uh, is that they have a logic and a creative side. And so when both of those are really strong, it's a really interesting combination. And I think my really strong logic side, which actually liked writing SQL database queries and figuring out how to lay out a page and how to lay out things in a structured way that made sense in the most clever, intelligent way of, of sort of answering a, a client's request of building something, that really plays a fun part in talking to my creative side because instead of just being creative all over the place, the structure gives it something to hold on to and say, okay, we can go all, all wild and nutty here, but we got to stick with the kind of the foundation that I'll hold on to. So, and I found that with my own podcast and interviewing people, I tend to migrate towards those people because even if they don't state it implicitly, we'll be halfway through the interview and they'll be like, oh yeah, I also do this other thing. You'd be like, okay. And they'll always have like this super creative thing and this super logic thing. And they don't even pay much attention to it because to them, it's just who they are. Hmm. Okay. Do you think, do you think it's only certain types of people are like that? Or do you think that everybody could potentially be like that? It's just dormant within them. Yeah. I don't think I'm qualified to, to, to answer that properly. So I think, yeah. right. And I, so I think that humbly, I would say, I assume that most, if not everyone, has that within them it's whether they explore it or not mm. and i think it's sort of like people who do and don't want to learn um it's kind of like somebody that i was explaining some web stuff to one day and i try to be really really good about speaking english when i do it but i had this this person that i've interacted with and he's, he's hilarious uh i had started to explain something to him and he said oh, I, don't, I don't know about that and i thought well right I'm explaining it to you. And I could see his, his mind had slammed the door and said, we don't, we don't go there. <laughs> I don't want to go there. It's too much work. I just do my thing I do and that's enough. And I think 
sometimes I wonder if that's really the difference in IQ and intelligence is this willingness versus this ability. Yeah. Now I was going to say like computer programming, the door on that was closed to me from self-limiting beliefs that I wasn't a computer guy. That was because as long as I had that belief, I would, I would mentally freeze. Like just what you were talking about there, I would glaze over because I just had this assumption that I'm not going to understand this. So why even listen? That was like the, the quick kind of unconscious kind of thing that was happening. And I see that in a lot of people, especially with languages. It's like, you'll see whether they believe they can learn it or not. And if they don't believe they can learn it, then they're not really going to listen. They, 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 it's not like they're doing it intentionally. It's just they have this kind of automatic, I can't do it. Some people are language people. And until they entertain it, but they can easily go, okay, if they got enough of the desire to do it, enough of buy-in, they can let go of that. But they need to make that decision, I think. That's uh, yeah. how I feel in that. From my own experience, that's, that's what it played out in my life so far. You know, it's probably the same for people who decide to, to, to work out or to like, you know, find something that they commit to physically. It's the same kind of thing where they, they can do it, but they think, well, I, 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 that's too much work to get started on something like that. I don't know how I could ever get started. And I remember I had a client who sort of roped me into doing this, this bike tour. And there's a bike tour called the Best Dam Bike Tour, as in a dam. And it's 150 miles in a weekend. And I thought, what? But because it was my client, I thought, oh, okay. And so I did it. And it was like, it was insane. But the most meaningful part of it wasn't the thing itself or afterwards. It was before because I started training for it. So I'd go out and I'd ride my bike for 12 to 20 miles as often as I could. And then if it would rain, I'd go, well, maybe it'll rain in the marathon. And so I, because I started doing it, I started doing it. But if you asked me before that, I'd be like, yeah, I'm, that's not going to happen. Hmm. And where did your podcast come about? The podcast came about, I think it's been about a year and a half. I think, yeah, 16, like 12, 13, 14. Uh, yeah, something like that. I think I have 71 episodes. It's pretty much every Sunday. So I think if you do the math, it's pretty much a year and a half. And when did it come about? I, it seemed to make sense because there are things I wanted to talk about that I didn't necessarily want to write about. Because right up until then, I was answering questions. And there's a, there's a question and answer site called Quora. I'm not sure if you're familiar with. Mm, yeah. But I have 1.3 million views <laughs> on my answers there. So I broke a million uh, last year, which I thought was pretty cool. So um, I really enjoyed writing articles on Quora and other places and LinkedIn. But I wanted to express myself a little bit differently. I wanted to express myself in a podcast format. And that's when I started doing the podcast. Were you always like comfortable communicating yourself? Oh, you think I'm comfortable? No. You don't seem uncomfortable anyway. No, I'm I'm kidding. Yeah. I um I I guess I I don't know. I um I enjoy public speaking a lot. And the size of the crowd doesn't matter. And I've done I wouldn't say massive crowds, but I've done some, I've done a couple impressively sized crowds that should have unnerved me, but they don't. And I find it fascinating that so many people put public speaking higher than like spiders and, and yeah. falling and, you know, it's like their biggest fear. So I, um, maybe I'm just crazy that way. I don't know. It could kind of crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So like with all the different stuff you're doing, do you have like a sense of a mission or a purpose, like something that you, you'd say that this is what I'm supposed to, this is what I'm doing or 
Or how does it play out for you? Yeah, I, I talk about um, in one of my podcasts, it's, it's job, career, or calling, I, I, I call it. And it's about what you enjoy doing, what you think you should be doing, and kind of what just feels right whether someone would pay you or not. So as far as my mission, uh, I wouldn't say necessarily it's a pretty cohesive answer other than I just want to explain things to people. I just want to, I want to discover things that may be complex and figure out a way to explain it to people in such a way that it makes sense to them. And that's it. That's perfect. That's, that's a really good mission. Yeah. I like that. So, so yeah, like, so where, where people find you online and where's the best place to find you and, and your books and what you're doing? So if you go to alchemy for life and it's spelling out all those words and just putting the dot before the life. So instead of dot com, it's dot life. I thought that was kind of clever. Maybe not. Uh, so if you go to alchemy for life, it, it has links to the book. It has links to the podcast. It's, it's a fairly vivid site. Uh, you kind of see my development skills and also my other skills at the same time. Uh, markbradford.org is sort of a hub for, everything that I do. So it, it shows my books and the podcast and even the book, uh, even the new book. And then if you go to, and, and if you go to that site, it'll give you links to everything else. So I guess I, I don't need to ramble and tell you about my Amazon authors. I keep calling an author's corner, but I think there's another word for it. Author but Central. I also have, I'm sorry. Or authors, author central. Author central. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> Amazon author central has obviously all of my books. My podcasts also connect to it, so you see that RSS feed there too. But honestly, if you just go to Alchemy for Life, you can do that. You can get in contact with me there. You can learn about the podcast, which will lead you to the iTunes and all that other stuff. So do you have any advice for somebody who has got a lot of different interests and they want to explore that? Yeah, absolutely. I'd say, I'd say, I'd, I'd say two things to them, um, well, or three things. First of all, yay. <laughs> I mean, bravo that you have interests. Uh, because that's that's huge. A lot of people just never explore that, and they go they go through life sort of in black and white. So if you have interests, that's awesome. Please please explore them. Uh, don't beat yourself up for liking different things. Don't think you're lost because you like doing other things. So you can be very much like me, in which your core talent is what's dictating these other things that seem to be disconnected, and they may be completely connected. Like all the stuff that I do is completely connected by the systems thing that we talked about. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, I just say, explore it. You, you, can't, you can't do anything wrong by exploring it. The, the worst thing you could do is just to ignore it because that's when you really feel like you're alive and you're in the zone is doing all those things. Yeah, that's true. I think when I used to ignore it, I just felt like, this is numbing. It just felt numb. Just felt like there was no point to things. Like it's just a general sensation. But yeah, so when you start exploring it, a lot of different feelings come up, good and bad, but it's, at least you feel alive. And I do feel bad. I mean, I feel bad when people don't do that. I know there's a lot of people out there who they don't explore things. They, um, they're kind of stuck in the, well, you know, that's just what I do kind of thing or their Monday through Friday thing. And, you know, and they just say, Oh my God, I'm working for the weekend. Oh my God. Well, <laughs> Maybe you should change that. You know, maybe you could explore something that really makes you a bit more happier. I don't know. But I do think people really need to explore a bit more on things that makes them happy because the world seems like a much nicer place when you're doing stuff like that. Yeah. Like, do you have any advice actually for anybody who, any tip to like face the unknown? Because I think a lot of what, what you would have been doing as well would have been like 
just unknowns and that can cause up a lot of fear and anxiety in people, just kind of unknowns. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I have a podcast called um, Dread and Doubt and it's all about dread and doubt and it's all about sort of dispelling it magically. And it's, it's such a simple thing, but I'll, uh, I'll, I guess I'll give it to you in a nutshell in that um, we are far more creative and our minds are far more powerful than we think they are. So we create these, these barriers. And I don't want to sound like go, go, rah, rah, yeah. Because I really don't like that kind of coach that says, you can do it and, and we're going to have a breakthrough. I, I, that makes me want to throw up in my mouth. So instead, what I want to say is um, just understand that a lot of the stuff you can inadvertently create because you play on this little stage in your head. And that's where um, fear and doubt can sometimes come from because you don't want to do this thing because you play it in your head and go, nope, because that's going to happen. And if you actually go, oh, well, let's play with the stage and you actually play it in your head over and over again, you start to see the absurdity of what you're thinking is happening. And it's similar to, it's similar to you sort of being alone for, for three or four hours in your house and, you're, and, you're, and you're, your brain starts echoing. It just starts talking and you'd be like, okay, this is, this is gonna be a bad day or I'm never gonna do this. But if you sit down with a friend and you say it out loud, it almost sounds dumb when you say it like, well, of course I don't believe that. But you have to break through the barrier of bouncing it around in your head. So I think that's what I would tell people. The single parenting thing was, was of course, absolutely terrifying. I remember just cooking for my kids because I never cooked. So I remember just trying to not kill them with meat. <laughs> and, you know, you start with like something simple like hamburger and you move up to chicken and you move all the way up to fish and pork and things like that. And you're like, whew, they're not dead. Yay. So, uh, I don't know. Sometimes, sometimes it's almost like you just want to say the phrase, well, what's the worst that could happen? You know? <laughs> don't have <Right>? faith. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right? No, no, it's true. Yeah, it is true. What's the worst that can happen? And uh, a lot of it's, you can deal out, you can start, start sifting out the imagination then if you're, if you're coming at it from more of a practical, logical standpoint. That's correct. Well, I guess speaking it out, when you're speaking it out, that's when you start seeing logic. But when it's in your head, like you can just float around inside there, you can't see it. Well, and it also becomes um, it also becomes law in your head. In your head, you can make um, like your own physics because you say it in such a way to yourself that it just becomes that. And okay, so this was going to be my fifth book, but I decided to go with the fiction. But I have um, I have a book that's based on the concepts of the different languages in our head, and I believe that our brain's operating system actually has three languages and I'm using one of them to talk to you right now. And there's two others. And when you put it into one of the other two languages, it becomes more of the physics. But if when you say it out loud and it comes back into your ear holes, you go, that sounds dumb. That sounds dumb. I'm not going to get fired today. You know, like if you say it, but if you keep it in your head and go and, and you kind of say, Oh, you know, no jobs are certain. Oh yeah. I'm not get fired today. You know, right. So like, so like, yeah. It depends on how you say it. <laughs> it's awful. That's an awful experience until like you start simplifying it, like we're saying there. Right. You did you ever you ever never try to learn a foreign language or anything? Did you? No, I would. I I, I regret that. I would love to. My 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 son knows uh, German quite well, and he's made it no uncertain terms that he's disappointed me that I never learned a language. Yes. Uh, I wish I did. It's something that fascinates me how like language how even second language acquisition, how it can help, help shape your identity, like how, what actually shifts when you start learning a new language and new word and stuff. 
think it's a fascinating kind of topic. I was recently talking to somebody who said she um she thinks in English, but she feels in Russian. So I need to, I want to uh, understand that a oh, bit better. I want to meet her. Yeah, no, I was asking more about that because I don't fully understand that, but it's uh, yeah. it's very interesting. I uh, I I knew someone who had who's, who who knew many languages, and they were telling me how a lot of times they think in a certain language, and it's easier because that language has the terms that are closer to the way that she thinks, but the one she normally speaks doesn't quite have that. And I wonder sometimes if certain terms would come to me easier. Uh, there's a lot of times, not a lot of times, but there's sometimes I can't think of a word that would be perfect, but I can automatically think of the two words that if you mush them together, their concepts, that would make that word. And yeah. so sometimes that's what my synonym finder in my head does when I'm writing. Okay. Yeah, that is funny. Yeah, that, that is kind of how languages work. Yeah, you'll find a perfect word in one language and then you won't find it here. And, it, yeah. and then you start seeing the influence culture has on the language because like if culture dictates something, then you'll have certain words for certain things that people see in the culture. Yeah. Right, like the Ojibwe Indians, they, they had... Uh, a whole bunch of words for for like uh, I think canoe and so forth, but they had like uh, no words for some of the more common concepts, or just like um, the concept of blue is actually relatively new. I mean, a lot like if you go to old English writing, the sea wasn't blue; it was like dark red. Yeah, because they like get blue was a different thing. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, what kind of confuses me? Because I read that about. Ancient civilization, where, or I don't know who it was again, but yeah, they didn't have a color for blue, so they didn't see blue in the world. They saw a different shade of something else. But then I'm kind of wondering, is it the label they're not seeing or is it, is it actually influence the color you see? Yeah, that gave me a headache thinking about that. <laughs> I, thought, I thought about that myself. Like, is there other things in life that I'm not seeing? I mean, obviously, there are conceptual things in life that you don't see. Like, you could easily see two people who are really who really like each other. And to, I, I, I pick up on things like that really easily where someone else may not, so they don't see the relationship. So you yeah. could say, I'm seeing a relationship other people aren't. But right, the whole concept of like what blue is, like do you and I even see the same thing when we see blue? Yeah. Like your blue could be red as long as your, all your other colors are in order. As long that? as they match, yeah. Yeah, yeah. As, as, long as, as, as long as there's a pattern. That was something that fascinated me about dyslexia too. Um, I wanted to understand what our they see things in patterns, but then I understood, I found out that they didn't see things in patterns. Because I was thinking if they saw certain words, sequences and stuff, because when the words and stuff were jumbled up, if there was a certain pattern to it, could you adjust your yourself to that? But then, I don't know, somebody told me that that, that isn't how it works. So, um, like what we're saying there, that like once the pattern matches, you'd never know the difference. Oh, interesting. I guess it's kind of like the writing that, that they have experimented with, where they 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 um change the letters in in a whole sentence, but the sentence you just if you read it quickly you don't yeah. even notice that. that yeah, thing. exactly. Yeah, because your brain adapts. Like, I, like your brain's a pattern recognition machine, so once it sees a pattern, it locks onto it. Yeah, very much so, and sometimes to our detriment. That sometimes when we get into these problems where we see the same patterns, or we expect to see a, a pattern, and then we have this whole cognitive thing going on where, you know, this bias that goes on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How do you break out of those biases? think really silly thoughts and mm. i and i and i and i mean that i mean i i think I, I think i mean that i think i think that's the gift of humor i think that's what humor does for us it gets us not only through some of the worst moments of our lives most horrible horrible terrible hell-like moments in our lives but it also 
gives us a perspective that we could never possibly have and give us a, a way of thinking, looking, and feeling about something that we, if there wasn't the concept of humor, we would never even think that. Yeah. I think I think seriously, having a sense of humor, having a, a silly sense of humor, a goofy sense of humor about things can really make you go, oh yeah, okay. But it's a pattern interrupt. That yes, it's exactly. Yeah, it's a control C. Yeah, no, it's a it's a it's a pattern interrupt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, cool. No, it's great talking to you. I love sharing our talking about the different interests you have and the kind of some of the some of the similarities we have, even though like yeah. our things are very different what we're doing, but there's a lot of similarities to it at the same time. Oh, so absolutely. And I love I love that you're out there. And I love a lot of the things that you've talked about too, and some of the things I've learned about you. I, I think that you're a very interesting person. <laughs> Thanks. You too, man. So yeah, cool. Thanks again for taking the time out uh, today. And yeah. uh, Mark, so until next time, have fun and enjoy the process. Thank you, sir. You too.